Well, once again, good morning. If you're new with us, I'm the new guy, so uh, it's good to be back. Like six weeks ago, I had a uh, knee replacement. I want to thank everybody for their prayers and support and love. It's been, uh, uh, God's been very, very gracious, and uh, so I'm, I'm about 85%, and just keep praying for me that I could, uh, somebody said, uh, we'll do some jumping jacks later. I don't think so, not right now. But... In case you forgot where we were uh, in the scriptures, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, if you turn there, to chapter 5. And let me just kind of lay this out, especially for those who are new. Uh, as we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to a section, or we have come to a section, in chapters 5 through 7, a section known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus began this sermon with what is called the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the introduction to the sermon, and they make up really the inward attitudes that are found in the heart of a child of God. Very important point, and we've made this several times in the past, let me say it again. Jesus did not direct this sermon at the multitudes. He directed it at his disciples, those who were already saved. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 made that clear. It tells us that this sermon was intended by Jesus to teach his disciples, and we're disciples of Christ if we're Christians, to teach them and us, of course, the principles for kingdom living right now. And we learn, as we have gone through these, you'll notice that in the Beatitudes, nine times the Lord uses the word blessed, which is the Greek word makarios. It literally means, oh, how happy. But it's not a happiness as the world defines it. The world defines happiness basically as when my outward circumstances are positive and pleasant, I'm happy. This is a Greek word that talks about a happiness that goes way down inside, rooted in the heart. We would call it joy. So Jesus is saying, oh, how joyful are those who manifest these qualities, and only children of God can manifest these qualities on a regular, continuing basis. And so far we have looked at the first six Beatitudes, which are found in verses 3 through 8. Of Matthew 5. That brings us this morning to the seventh beatitude found in verse 9, where Jesus simply said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a news junkie. All right. I mean, I really enjoy watching the news, keeping up on top of things. If you've been watching the news over the last few weeks, you realize that the Middle East is on fire, isn't it? The Middle East is on fire. Of course, a lot of people look at these uprisings and these rebellions and revolts where they are overthrowing dictatorships, evil dictatorships. And of course, the world is so naive to think that when you have rebels that rise up and overthrow something bad, they're going to replace it with something good. That's not necessarily the case. And I have a very sickening feeling in my heart what's going to replace these dictatorial regimes are not going to be better, are going to be even worse. I see this as God setting the stage for the final scenario, I see the nations around the Middle East becoming more and more antagonistic toward Israel and the West. And of course, as the Middle East goes, often so goes the world. And so as the Middle East is erupting and dissolving into chaos, as the Middle East becomes more and more unstable, of course, the threat of war for the rest of us becomes more and more likely. And because of it, the one thing that seems to be on the hearts and minds of so many today is peace. You hear it all over the place. What we really need today is peace. Oh, peace is the most important thing this world needs. And certainly peace is an important thing. 
is we're going to see today it's not the most important thing. It's actually a byproduct of the most important thing, okay? We'll get to that. But it's one thing to want peace. It's another thing to actually make it a reality. That's the hard part, isn't it? Now, let me just stop and say this. No one wants peace in the world more than God himself. You realize that? No one wants peace in the world more than God himself. The scriptures teach us that God is a God of peace. In fact, one of the Old Testament names for God is Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah is his name, and Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. So one of the very names for God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Peace. God is a God of peace. What's more, in the Bible, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Peace. And God's word is a book about peace. In fact, 400 times in the New Testament, a reference is made to peace, whether it be vertical peace between God and man or a horizontal peace between man and his fellow man. We see that the theme of peace dominates the scripture from one end to the other. And so peace is not only important to God, it actually defines who he is. He is the God of peace. Now, in the light of this, The question that immediately jumps to people's minds is, well, if God is a God of peace, who wants peace in the world, then where are all these wars coming from, and why doesn't God do something to stop it? Where do wars come from? I'll give you a single word for an answer. Sin. Sin. Remember what James said in his epistle? He asked this very question. He said, where do wars and fights come from among you? And then he answered his own question when he said, that wars and conflict between people and nations come as a result, listen, of the evil, selfish desires that are rooted in man's wicked, fallen heart. As long as there are evil people in control of nations who live to conquer and control others, there's going to be wars, which then makes counter-warfare a necessity. And because of it, God isn't against leading nations into war to end tyranny and bring about peace. And so a peacemaker, listen, at times may find himself or herself in a war against evil as a prelude to peace. Jesus as the Prince of Peace is the prime example of this in that he is coming again to the earth someday, right? The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus is coming again to the earth, to the world a second time. And when he comes, he's going to make war with the nations of this world who have rejected him as their king. And in particular, with their evil leader that we call the Antichrist, who will be in power at the time Jesus returns, and in fact, who will have led the world in a war against Jesus Christ. They're going to all gather in the valley of Megiddo to fight against the Lord Jesus. I can't even imagine that scene. How do you fight against God? What weapons do you bring to the battle? You got your AK-47s and your Apache helicopters and your surface-to-air missiles. Come on, we're going to fight God. Of course, Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heaven shall laugh. This is funny. Gabriel, get a look, look at this. They think they're going to fight against me. And Jesus will return. Revelation 19 and beginning of chapter 20. You can read this in Revelation. Jesus is going to return and fight against them with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth. He's going to take them, wipe these nations out, cast them into Hades. And then he will establish his kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of true peace and righteousness. And yet this beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, wasn't political in nature. Because the kind of peace Jesus came to bring the world at his first coming 
wasn't a political peace between nations, and it wasn't even a social peace between individuals. Listen, it was a spiritual peace between God and man. It is true. At his second coming, he's going to bring peace to the whole world. Where the Bible says all swords and spears, all man-made weaponry, is going to be turned into plowshares and pruning hooks, and God has promised at that time mankind will no longer study and practice war anymore. But first things first. First things first. Before there can be peace between man and his fellow man, there first has to be peace between man and his God. And so the first order of business, and this is why Jesus came, the first order of business was to change the heart because it is in the fallen heart of man that resides war, oppression, conflict, and conquest. Those are always there in the heart of a fallen sinner. And if you're going to deal with the problems outwardly, you first have to deal with the heart and the problems inwardly. You see, there can be no peace globally until mankind has peace internally. And right now that's not possible because most people don't have the Prince of Peace ruling in their hearts, do they? But until Jesus brings peace into a human heart, that heart will always be void of true peace, which means it will continue to be dominated by sin, conflict, and turmoil. God said this very clearly in Isaiah chapter 57. You don't really have to turn there. But in verses 20 and 21, listen to what God says. He said, the wicked, which is just another way of saying unbelievers, the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. For all those who do not know me, who do not have my son reigning in their hearts, there is no peace. What does the world do when people go through adversity or turmoil or, or pain? Or, what do they usually do? Well, they run to the medicine cabinet and get the pills out or grab a bottle of something, you know, and, and try to drown their sorrows or, or numb themselves to the pain. But that's an artificial peace and leads to problems. The kind of peace that God gives is neverlasting peace, and it leads to freedom and real joy. Now, let me just stop and say this. We need to realize that peace in God's eyes is much more than the absence of war. You realize that? I mean, look, folks, there is no fighting in a cemetery, but we would hardly hold up a cemetery as an example of peace, right? In the Bible, peace is not just the absence of the negatives. It is the presence of the positives. True peace, the kind that comes from God, signifies the presence of all that is good and wonderful in life. Now, I've been to Israel six times. I've seen this many times. You know, anytime two Jews come together, what do they say to each other? Shalom, right? Shalom. But the Hebrew word shalom doesn't just mean, may your life be free from war and conflict. The word shalom contains a desire for all the goodness and blessings God can bestow upon your life. It's the presence of the positives, right? Not just the absence of the negatives. Now, as Christians, we know the only way for that ever to become a reality in a person's life, where they know all the fullness of God, all the blessings, all the joy that comes from God in their lives, is for them to receive Jesus Christ into their lives, to receive the Prince of Peace, to take the throne of their heart, right? And until they do that, they will never know true peace because Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself, Jesus Christ, he himself is our peace. There is no real peace without Jesus Christ ruling in a person's heart. Now, once we receive Jesus into our hearts as our Lord and Savior, at that very moment, Paul the Apostle said in Romans 5, verse 1, something miraculous happens. Listen to what he said. Therefore, having been 
justified by faith. That's another way of saying, having been saved through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Underline the word with, right? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean, we have peace with God? Well, the Bible teaches us that way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, it opened up a rift, a great chasm between God and man. And every descendant born to them after that point was born separated from God. Actually, it was more than that. The Bible says we were born at enmity with God. We were the enemies of God. You say, not me. I went to church all my life. I love God. I went to church all my life too before I got saved. It wasn't while I was at church that was the problem. It's what I did after I left church all week long. See, that's the problem. Back then, yeah, I had a form of godliness. I I was raised in the Catholic Church. I went through all the ceremonies and rituals. I made my first confirmation, my first Holy Communion, my confirmation, all those things. I observed the feast days and the holy days just like any other normal Catholic did. I had religion, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That was the problem. And you know why I know that now looking back? Because my life was characterized by rebellion. Oh, I wasn't as bad as some people. But I was definitely no saint, all right? And that's the problem. You can be religious and still be in rebellion against God. Where you think, because I go to church on Sunday morning, I'm good. God and I are good. It doesn't really matter how I live after that. Yes, it does matter. In fact, it reflects where your heart is really at. Because all my life before I received Christ, I went to church and yet I did my own thing. I didn't bring God into every situation, every decision. I did what I wanted to do. I did what was best for me. And if I had to step on a few people to get where I wanted to be, that's the way it had to be. Because my ultimate happiness superseded everybody else. I was at enmity with God. And every day I proved it by living a rebellious life. But once I received Jesus Christ, something wonderful happened. At that instant, I had peace with God. The blood of Christ washed me of all my sins. And the enmity was over with. I no longer wanted to rebel against God. I wanted to live for God. And that's why I studied the Bible. Because I wanted to know what God had said that I could live for Him and glorify Him. But let me say this to you. Something else wonderful happens when we give our hearts to Christ. Not only do we have peace with God, but according to what Paul said in Philippians 4 verse 7, we now have the peace of God which fills our hearts and begins to guard our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that mean? It means that, you know what, once I have peace with God, Jesus Christ comes inside of me, the Prince of Peace, right? And all of a sudden now, His peace begins to fill my life on a daily basis. Peace with God, that's positional. That's salvation. The peace of God, that's practical. That's daily peace that God gives to me to draw on when I face Daily trials, adversities, sorrows, and heartaches, and whatever else life brings our way. We don't have to run to the medicine cabinet or to the liquor cabinet. We run to our God, right? Because in Him we have peace. He carries us. See, we've already pointed this out, but once a person received Jesus Christ, as Peter said, they become partakers of the divine nature because Jesus Christ comes to live inside through His Holy Spirit. And since God is a God of peace, the believer in Christ is filled with the peace of God. Didn't Jesus promise us this the night before the cross? Remember in the upper room in John 14, what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said a lot of things, but this is the one I want to key in on, verse 27. 
He says, peace I leave with you. What? My peace I give to you. Not the kind of peace the world gives. Because that's artificial. That leads to more problems. The kind of peace that I give is real. It's lasting. It won't hurt you. It will liberate you. And once you give your heart to Christ and Jesus Christ comes inside as the Prince of Peace, not only does this peace fill our lives, but he gives us a new heart. Listen to me, the heart of a peacemaker. The heart of a peacemaker. And that's what Jesus meant when he said here in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. He was telling us that even as it is in the heart of God to be a peacemaker, how was God a peacemaker to us? Well, God reached out through his Son to offer rebels peace. We were all at enmity with God at one point. We were all living rebellious lives against his will. But he reached out to us in his love, and he offered us his son. And once we received him as our Lord and Savior, we were no longer the enemies of God, the rebels against God. We were the children of God. God's peace filled our heart, and he gave to us a new heart, which meant that now as God is a peacemaker who wants to reach out and help others make peace with him, now he places that desire in all of our hearts to reach out and to help others come to know our God and have peace, right? Let's face it, guys. How many people did you want to witness to about Jesus Christ before you got saved, right? You don't want to hear people witnessing to you about Jesus Christ. But once you got saved, you had this incredible desire to tell others about him. The peacemaker, very simply, guys, and this I don't think is all that Jesus meant, but I do think it's the main thing he was talking about. A peacemaker is one who goes about sharing the gospel, which brings peace between God and man. Didn't God say this to the prophet Isaiah, which the apostle Paul quotes in the New Testament, Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, that's the word for the gospel, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of great joy, who proclaims salvation. Isn't that our ministry now? To go forth and to proclaim the good news that God sent His Son that we would no longer have to be the enemies of God. We could be the children of God and have peace. Now, to all the peacemakers here, and I just simply mean, mean all the children of God, I want you to know that the great enemy of peace is sin. We just talked about that. James makes reference to that. Why is that? Well, Jesus said in John 3, because men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are what? Evil. Didn't he say to his disciples in the upper room, actually they, were, they had left the upper room by this time, and were walking through the streets of Jerusalem towards uh, the Mount of Olives. But didn't Jesus turn to them at one point and say, look, I want to tell you guys something. If the world has hated me, get ready, it's going to hate you also. Why? Because you're no longer of the world. If you were still of the world, the world would love you because the world always loves those that belong to it. But I've called you out of the world. That's what the word church means, a group of called out ones. I've called you out of the world to be my special people. I've given you my heart, my nature. And as such, the world is going to hate you and persecute you even as it has done to me. I mean, it must have struck the disciples pretty odd when Jesus said in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 5, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies are going to be those of their own household. What in the world 
is the Lord talking about? The Prince of Peace didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. I mean, what did Paul mean when he said in Ephesians 6.15 that the gospel is the gospel of peace? doesn't sound like it. The answer to that is that true peace with God only comes, listen to me, when we first declare war on sin and present the gospel for what it is. Not this inane happy talk that so many churches seem to, be, seem to think that's what the gospel is. Just this happy talk. What does that mean? Well, you come to a lot of churches and you, you get the impression that, you know, being saved, receiving the gospel and so on, it's all about God blessing you, making you happy. And they're defining happiness in that regard as outward circumstances. I come to Jesus, God's going to make me healthy and prosperous, He's going to bless my business, I'm going to have big cars and a fancy house and blah, blah, blah. He's going to just bless my socks off. Just all happy talk, right? The gospel is not happy talk, guys. You know what it is? It is our spiritual emancipation proclamation. Where God is saying, look, you were taken captive by the devil in the Garden of Eden. And all of Adam's descendants born after Adam have been born as slaves of Satan and sin. But the good news is you don't have to live under that any tyranny any longer. Because my son, through his blood on Calvary's cross, has redeemed you if you will receive him. He will set you free. He's come to set the captives free, right? And in so doing, he will become your new master. He will give you freedom from the old things that had you bound, the sin and the habits and so on. You don't have to go on living in sin any longer. See, that's the idea here. The gospel is all about setting us free, right? It's not about happy talk where I can have my sin and God and just keep on going the way I'm going. But see, here's the problem. People won't see their need for a Savior until they first see themselves as sinners destined for hell. See, that's the problem, isn't it? You start talking about God's love, most people will listen to you. You start talking about sin and hell and judgment, oh man, they turn you off so quick. But you see, people won't see their need for a Savior until they first see themselves as sinners who are hell-bound. And here is, it's at this point that a peacemaker often finds him or herself engaged in a war of sorts with a person who refuses to see themselves as a sinner. This is where the warfare comes in. This is why Jesus divides families. Why? Because somebody gets saved and they begin to share the gospel with their mom and dad and brothers and sisters. And what do the family do? They attack. Who are you to tell me? I knew you before you got all religious, you know? Don't tell me about God. Me and God are good. See, that's where the division comes in, right? Because people refuse to see themselves as sinners. Because they have religion, and because they have what the Bible calls a form of godliness. I had religion, folks. I didn't have a relationship. Religion does that. It blinds you to your true self. Now, unfortunately, we have way too many people in the church today who are willing to accommodate that. That, to me, is the big tragedy in the church today. People who are willing to accommodate a person's desire to hold on to their sin. This is where the problems arise. Problems that stem from not really understanding what the gospel is really all about. Or what it means to be a peacemaker. You know, there are many who look at Christianity in general. And the concept of being a peacemaker in particular. We talk about being a peacemaker. What are we talking about? Sharing the gospel, right? So there are many who look at Christianity in general and the concept of being a peacemaker in particular in a kind of a pacifistic way. 
What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, a pacifist is someone who's strongly, who is strongly opposed to violence and especially war to settle disputes or conflicts. A pacifist would never use war to bring about peace. And there are many Christians in the body of Christ who are what we would call pacifists in the sense that they would never associate sharing the gospel with spiritual warfare because, again, in their minds, war is a bad thing. It's a negative thing. And we should only use, quote-unquote, positive means to save people, which in their minds, and maybe you've run into these people, I'm sure you have, I have, which in their mind means the only way to reach people with the gospel is to love them into the kingdom. Love them into the kingdom. Now, folks... I don't have a problem with loving people into the kingdom as long as they're already broken over their sin. Okay, Jude said, some save with compassion, others save with fear, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, I've run into people who know they're sinners. I mean, they're, they're not saved, but they know they're sinners. They're broken over their sin. They, their sin has devastated their lives, their marriages, their families. They know they're sinners. You don't have to beat them up with the gospel in the sense of pointing out all their sins. They know they're sinners. They need to know God loves them and will receive them if they receive Christ. So we love them into the kingdom, right? What about those people, though, who are hard-hearted, obstinate, who refuse to see themselves as sinners, who say, I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I think when I stand before God, He's going to let me in. What are you doing to people like that? You don't love them into the kingdom. You kick them in the pants, really. You, you hold their feet to the fire. You know? You've got you to gotta scare them. You know? But that's wrong. Really? I don't care how people get into heaven as long as they don't go to hell. You want to love men, frighten them in, I don't care. I was scared in myself, all right? I'm scared in. I mean, you know, I think it happened right around the time I watched The Exorcist, the movie. You know, I was like 17 years old. I came home, and I, I, I just got on the floor, and I wept and cried. I don't want to go to hell, God. I, I was scared to death. And, and, and the Lord even began to answer back then. No, of course, that I'm a Christian. I don't have a fear because I perfect love casts out fear. But I don't care what gets you into heaven. I just want to see you not go to hell. But there are these people though, that, that, that think that the only way to get people saved is to love them into the kingdom. Forgetting that Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, when we get to Matthew 11, we'll, read, we'll study a little more about what that means. But let, let me just give you the gist of it. Jesus is saying that there, we're in a war. We're in a war. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of people who don't believe by his deceptions and lies and sin. And he does that because he wants to keep them away from the kingdom. And those of us who have entered the kingdom, we have to violently oppose him. What does that mean? It's just, it's just a, the language is simply warfare, right? We're in a war. The devil has got a hold of the people that we love who don't know Jesus Christ and wants to keep them out of heaven. And we need to fight against the devil through prayer and the word of God and so on to see them brought to Christ. But there's a kind of a violent struggle going on, isn't there? And yet for many today in the church, this is not only a foreign concept, it's an abhorrent concept. You see, confrontation and condemnation, what do I mean? Confronting somebody with the gospel and condemning any living that is sinful, well, these folks have a real problem with that. They say it's judgmental. Never leads to anything good, especially when it comes to bringing somebody to, to Jesus and salvation. My, you can't use that judgmental stuff. So what do they do? Well, they wrap their tolerant little arms around these sinners, those people living in sin, and they don't make it an issue. It's no big deal, okay? How you're living, not a big deal. You know, God's a God of love, right? 
Let's not get bogged down with the details. God loves you and wants to save you. Yeah, God loves you and wants to save you, but inherent in that idea is that God wants you to repent of your sins, turn away, come to Christ, and walk with him in obedience. Remember the woman caught in the very act of adultery that brought to Jesus the lost and stoner? What do you say? What did he tell her? He said, neither do I condemn you. But what? Go and sin no more. You think sin is important to God? Of course it is. He didn't say, oh, I don't condemn you. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, no big deal. God's love. It doesn't matter how you live. I mean, you love each other, right? It doesn't matter if you're married or not. You know, come on. This is the world's mentality today. How did it get in the church? This is the, this is the thing that I don't get. How did this get into the church? Instead of, so instead of confronting people with the gospel of peace, which declares war on sin, these folks try to win converts by compromising with sin and watering down the gospel so as to make it non-confrontational and therefore non-offensive. Folks, the gospel is inherently offensive. Why? Because it says to people, you are fallen sinners unworthy of heaven. No matter how good you try to be, you'll never measure up to God's righteous, perfect standards. And therefore, you are doomed to hell for eternity. Now, that doesn't appeal to my flesh, right? Especially if I'm a religious person who all my life has given myself over to, to observing my religious rituals and ceremonies and all that. To hear somebody say, oh, that's not good enough. You're never going to get into heaven by observing those religious things. Or going out and helping people, which is a good thing to do. It just won't get you into heaven. When people hear that, they become very, very antagonistic. The gospel is inherently offensive. We just need to be, make sure that we don't, we're not offensive when we present it. I mean, be loving. Be kind, but be honest. I mean, we just can't sugarcoat it, folks. This is the way it is, right? And if we try to sugarcoat it like some people who try to downplay sin, because here's the deal. They want to see a lot of people say, God bless you, praise the Lord, that's wonderful but you're never going to see people saved if you lower the standards. See, that's the, that's the inherent flaw with the thinking today. If I lower the standards and, and, and kind of make sin not so offensive and not so a bit, much of a big deal, like God really doesn't care all that much, I think I'm going to get more people saved. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill the church with religious unbelievers who think they're right with God when they're not because they're still holding on to their sin and still living in rebellion. And what it does, folks, is it gives unbelievers a false sense of peace with God, just as the false prophets in Israel did in Jeremiah's day. You know, in my morning devotions, I'm, I'm in the prophets now. I just finished Isaiah. I'm in Jeremiah now. And this really has come home strong to me once again as I'm reading through Jeremiah. You see, in Jeremiah, God sent Jeremiah to warn the nation that their sins were so many, were, were so great, so abhorrent to God, and that God's judgment was about to fall on the nation if they didn't repent immediately and get right with God. That's what God told Jeremiah to tell the nation of Israel. But all the prophets and priests by this time, except for a few, had become corrupted. They were in for the bucks, for the popularity, and so on. The corrupt priests and prophets, wanting to be popular with the people, went around undoing the message God gave Jeremiah to proclaim. They told the people not to listen to Jeremiah's words. Telling the people that they were sinners who needed to repent. I mean, come on. What a judgmental and unloving person Jeremiah is. Think about it. Listen to what he's saying to you. How terrible. Instead, the false religious leaders presented a message of hope and blessing while making God's prophet, the one that God had sent, who was actually speaking for God, trying to warn the people to repent before it was too late. No, the false prophets, the false priests, 
tried to undo all that, and in the process made Jeremiah to look like an unloving, judgmental fearmonger. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Aren't we living in a day when if you try to talk against sin at all, in any context, right away you get the judge not lest you be judged. Boy, you're such a judgmental person. God is love. It's just the same thing as we see in Isaiah's day, Jeremiah's day, and so on. And all of this gave the people in Jeremiah's day a false sense of assurance, which gave them a false sense of peace, that everything was right between them and God, and that they could expect blessing from God instead of what was really coming, and that was judgment. And why were the false teachers able to so easily and so effectively deceive the people into thinking that they had peace with God when in fact God had set himself against them in the form of coming judgment? Why could they, were they so totally deceived? Because the message of these false prophets and priests, listen, was very positive, very comforting. It was just what the people wanted to hear. Not what they needed to hear, folks, what they wanted to hear. It appealed to their flesh. The very thing Paul the Apostle warned would happen in the last days. And folks, I don't know about you, but I think we're in the last days. Listen to what Paul said would characterize the church, not the world now, he's talking about the church, in the last days. First of all, he said in 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3, he told Timothy, a young pastor, and this would apply to all pastors, all teachers, all leaders in the church, preach the word of God. Don't preach your opinions don't tell your stories. I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the years and said, look, we were going to such and such a church for years, and yet we had to leave. I said, well, why? Because the pastor would get up there, and all he would do is just share stories. Now, look, if a personal story is a point to it, and it illustrates or emphasizes a biblical point you're trying to make in the message, go for it. But when I go to church, I want to hear the Word of God. I don't want to hear anecdotes and funny stories, and I want to hear from God. So Paul said, Timothy... Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable for people to listen or not, well, it's not so favorable today. He said, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching from God's word is the idea. For the time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching from the Bible. But they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. You find a good, strong Bible-teaching church, and in general in this country, it's less than 300 people. You find a church that's preaching heresy, telling everybody and their brother they can be healthy and wealthy, and God wants to bless your business and make you rich and all the... You, you can't find a stadium big enough to hold all the people. This is the day in which we're living. I want you to listen to the message God gave Jeremiah to proclaim to Israel, and compare it to what we see in America. I mean, there's a lot of parallels, right? Listen to what God said. This, this comes out of Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 4 through 12. God said, Jeremiah, say to this people, this is what the Lord says. When people fall down, don't they get up again? When they discover they're on the wrong road, don't they turn back? Then why do these people stay on their self-destructive path? Why do the people of Jerusalem refuse to turn back? They cling tightly to their lies and will not turn around. I listen to their conversations. Wow, that ought to send shivers up our spine. God is listening to our conversations. And I don't hear a word of truth. Is anyone sorry for doing wrong? Does anyone say what a terrible thing I have done? No. 
All are running down the path of sin as swiftly as a horse galloping into battle. He said, my people do not even know my laws. Because they're not being taught the word. How can you say, we are wise because we have the word of the Lord, when your teachers have twisted it and wrote lies? These wise teachers, so-called, will fall into the trap of their own foolishness, for they have rejected the word of the Lord. From the least to the greatest, their lives are ruled by greed. There's a lot of greed in ministry today. A lot of people in it for the bucks. Yes, even my prophets and priests are like that. They're all frauds. They offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound. Listen, they give assurance of peace when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of, disgust, of their disgusting actions? Not at all. They don't even know how to blush. Therefore, they will lie among the slaughtered. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. Some very heavy words here. And the gist of it is this. God is saying, my people have wounded themselves with mortal wounds because of their sins. And I have sent my prophets to them to give them the hard reality that their nation is just about done if they don't repent quickly and get right with me. My prophets like Jeremiah have gone to the nation and are trying to tell them about the sin of the nation and they need to repent. And what's going on? The false prophets and the false priests are putting band-aids on mortal wounds by comforting the people. Oh no, they read Jeremiah. Oh, this is not going to happen to you. Jeremiah, don't listen to him. The Babylonians, they're not going to take you captive. You're God's people. He loves you. Look at his temple is here. He would never let his people be carried away captive to Babylon, right? No, no, no. You can expect blessings from God. Prosperity. I can just hear it, right? The people had a mortal wound. And the only cure was some very strong medicine. But the people didn't want to hear it. The people didn't want to hear it. They wanted their ears tickled. And so God says, they're allowing false teachers and false prophets to put band-aids on mortal wounds. That's not going to heal the wound. It's just going to give you a false assurance that things are okay when they're really not. Look, I don't know about you guys. I was telling first service. If you're going through some symptoms and you, 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 all of a sudden you're, you're, you're getting some, some strange symptoms, okay, in your body. You go to a doctor and he or she puts you through a battery of tests, right? The tests come back. And he or she then looks at the test and realizes you have a very serious disease. It's terminal unless it's treated immediately. And the treatment is not going to be very pleasant, but it's absolutely essential if you're going to live through this. When you go to the doctor, do you want them to comfort you by telling you lies? Or do you want the truth? Do you want them to say, even though they know the truth, to say, take a couple aspirins, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Or do you want them to give you the hard reality and say, look, I'm not going to lie to you. Things are bad. I think we can save your life, but it's going to take some hard treatments. Are you ready? Well, yeah, to save my life, I'm willing to do whatever I have to do. See, the same is true with this context. I mean, Israel back then had a terminal disease, sin. And they needed to make some hard choices. They needed to get right with God quickly, just like America. You know, America is in some real trouble, folks. I believe, whether you're talking about financial problems or natural disasters or terrorist attacks, I think it's all being allowed by God to wake us up, but we're not waking up. That's what happened in Israel's day, by the way. In my devotions, I was reading. And God said, you know, I've tried to wake these people. I've sent my prophets to them early in the morning, rising up early to wake them, but they haven't woken up. Now you know what, Jeremiah, don't even pray for them anymore. It's too late. My judgment's coming now. I hope it's not too late for America. 
I'm just telling you, though, what happened with Israel. Listen, God and mankind are at war with each other. It started in the Garden of Eden with sin. But God is the ultimate peacemaker, reached out to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And when He did, the righteousness of God was satisfied. Our sins were paid for. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross. It just means everybody could go to heaven if they would receive Christ and what He did for them. That's the key. You have to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've got to receive what He did for you. It's not automatic. It's available, but it's not a given. You've got to receive His salvation, His free gift, right? But Paul the Apostle said this, and you have to turn to these. Just listen. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, listen to what Paul says. He says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Jesus Christ, when He died on Calvary's cross, satisfied God's righteousness. Sin was paid for. God, at that point, was no longer our enemy. We had peace in the sense that God was now saying, look, the way has been made available for anybody to come to me and receive my son and be saved. But people have to receive Jesus. And that becomes our ministry. After we've been saved, our ministry is to go out there and share the good news of the gospel with others. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Or I'll just really verse 18 for right now. He said, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us now as Christians the ministry of reconciliation. Let me paraphrase that. He's given us the ministry of peacemakers. That's what it means. Folks, this morning... God's greatest desire for your life and your greatest need is to make peace with God through Jesus Christ, His Son. If you haven't done that, that's where everything begins. All the blessings, all the fullness, everything good in life that God wants to do for you all happens, starts at the point of salvation when you make peace with God through Jesus. This is the greatest peace the human race is ever going to know. And as we as his children have been given the privilege of being peacemakers, which means we have been given the privilege of going into all the world, sharing the gospel, which alone can bring peace between God and man. But I want you to understand one last thought, okay? Because I don't think Jesus meant, in verse 9, I don't think that was the only thing he had in mind, sharing the gospel. That was the biggest thing, but not the only thing. Because as God's children, our responsibility as peacemakers doesn't end with sharing the gospel with the lost. It's something that then begins to characterize our entire lives. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul in Ephesians verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You're children of God now, sons and daughters of the king. That's a, that's a high calling. Walk worthy of it. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, God has brought us together as one body. There is great power and unity coupled with love, right? The devil hates that and wants to divide the church of Jesus Christ. We are to do all we can to keep the unity of the Spirit going. Yeah, but people hurt me. They wrong me. Die to self. Reach out. Be a peacemaker. I'll just say this to you. In Matthew 5, verses 23 and 4, though, Jesus did say, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift to God. What does that mean? 
It means that worship and warfare cannot coexist at the same altar. And just because we come to church and we do service for God and we offer God sacrifices of money and time and so on, if we are harboring all kinds of bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts towards others, how can you love God whom you have not seen, John said, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen? Leave your gift to the altar, go make amends with your brother or your sister, and then come back here or get your worship with me on track again. Look, when Christians harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts, listen, this is what happens. They begin to gossip and slander one another. And when that happens, they become troublemakers and not peacemakers. That's the sad reality. We ought to fear that, especially because of something God said through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 6. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, are an abomination to him. Wow, I've memorized those, okay? Because whatever God hates, whatever is an abomination to him, I don't want anything to do with. And listen to what ends the list. A false witness who speaks lies, which is gossip, and one who sows discord among brethren. See, I don't know if you realize this, and this is so rampant in the church today. So many people who are, for whatever reason, bound and determined to sow discord and and put people down and gossip and so on. If you're not going to promote unity, but you're going to give yourself over to causing disunity and discord, division and so on, do you realize that you're actually now no longer working for God? You're working for the devil? Because the devil comes to divide and conquer, right? He comes to divide. That's his whole deal. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Peace. There's harmony. There's love. Unity. That's why God said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of the, actually the children of God. And again, in saying that, he's not saying that being a peacemaker is going to make you a child of God. It just proves that you are one. And I would have to wonder if all those folks in churches across this country who are constantly giving themselves over to discord and putting people down and dividing churches, if they're not really manifesting the nature of their father, who is not God the Father, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the what? The devil. Because God's kids should want to promote unity and harmony. Now, we don't always do it perfectly, and certainly we need to confront each other if there's sin in the camp. But we do it with love and tears, right? We don't do it cocky and haughty and then going around telling everybody what a low life you are because you got some sin in your life. Look at me. I'm so much better than them. Look at, you know. No. We need to humbly keep each other accountable, but then work to be peacemakers in all we do. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Father, thank you that you as the ultimate peacemaker reached out to rebels like us offering us a chance to have peace with you through your Son. And those of us that have received Jesus, well, you've come to live in our hearts. You've given us peace and a heart that wants to see others come to peace with you. Lord, give us grace to realize that we are in a violent struggle with the enemy for the souls of men and women, people that we love, family and friends. And the devil is not playing games. We better get serious because this is no joke. Give us grace, Lord, to share the good news, but to share it faithfully and accurately, not to water it down, not to try to make it more acceptable to the minds of those who are unsaved, but to share it in love, but to share the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.